Good morning again. Our scripture reading for this morning is uh, from Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through the end of the chapter, verse 46. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be plenty of Bibles on the back table. You should feel free to go and grab one of those Bibles. And uh, if you don't own a Bible at all, you should feel free to take that Bible with you, write your name in the cover, uh, keep it as your own, and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. As, uh, as you turn there to Matthew 22, uh, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we do pray that you would breathe on us, that you would pour out your Spirit on us now, that we would hear your Word, that we would have ears to hear, that we would understand your Word by the power of your Spirit, that your Spirit would use your Word in our hearts to, to transform us into the image of Jesus. We pray that you would do that work, Father. We recognize that apart from the work of your Spirit, everything that we do is impotent and uh, even meaningless. And so we pray for your Spirit to work right now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 22, beginning with verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, and his brother must marry, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. 
and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Well, people often come to Christianity with lots of questions. If I become a Christian, uh, does that mean I have to change my politics? Does it mean I have to take a certain stance on particular issues? Does it mean I have to believe certain things about creation or about science, about family or about marriage? Will Christianity tell me what I can and cannot do? Of course, you can imagine sometimes these questions get pretty heated. Well, we're in a section of Matthew's Gospel where there, the hostility between Jesus and the religious leaders was coming out. We've seen conflict between Jesus and the kingdom that he is bringing and the kingdom as it was understood in his day already. The Jews of Jesus' day were expecting a kingdom of God to come, but they thought that God was going to send his Messiah, send his Christ, and the Messiah would defeat the Romans, throw off Roman rule, and restore political autonomy to Israel. Jesus didn't quite fit this mold. We've even seen Jesus uh, begin to go on the offensive. He, he's begun to tell the religious leaders that they are unfaithful servants of the kingdom. You can imagine, right, if Jesus begins to challenge the religious establishment so directly, you can imagine how they might respond. Of course, you don't have to imagine because Matthew tells us in verse 15. Verse 15, Matthew says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. See, the religious leaders of Jesus' day uh, have gotten fed up. Jesus is a threat to their way of doing things, and they want to get rid of him. But because of his popularity and and really because of his impeccable character, uh, they have to work hard to try to trap him. So they go and they begin to plot together. They begin to conspire how to entangle Jesus in his words. And their strategy is really to to use issues to discredit Jesus. Three times in our passage, uh, the religious leaders ask questions to try to discredit Jesus. Jesus is challenged in his views on politics, in his views on theology and the miraculous, and in his views on ethics. The religious leaders are trying to discredit Jesus by by getting him to trip up or, or to take an unpopular stance or to alienate people because of some issue. They're using issues to discredit Jesus. Now, I wonder if there isn't some issue that is standing in your way of considering the claims of Christianity, some issue that you use to discredit Jesus and kind of just dismiss him. Sometimes we have litmus tests for Christianity. What hang-ups do you have? 
Maybe it's this whole debate on creation and evolution, or, or maybe it's the church's stance on homosexuality, or Christian teaching on abortion and divorce, or the church's teaching on gender roles, or maybe it's miracles, or, or maybe it's some political issue, and you don't like the, quote, Christian take on that issue, by which you mean a certain American political agenda that some Christians have. Is there something that's standing in your way some issue that you've decided simply discredits Jesus from the start? Is there some, maybe even smokescreen, right, that you use as an excuse to safely ignore Christianity? Well, maybe if you were to look into these issues, uh, you would find what some in Jesus' day found, which is that Jesus is not as easy to pin down on some things as you might think. In fact, his answers to our questions really go much deeper than the either-or uh, paradigm that we often set up for ourselves. Well, we're going to look at some questions that Jesus was asked in his day one by one. Uh, we're going to look at the political question and the theological question and the ethical question and then the, the central question that Jesus gets at in the end. Uh, you can see that outline on the back of your bulletin if you want to turn there. That's a, a nice space to take notes if you feel so inclined. So the first question is the political question. Verse 16 says, uh, they sent, as the Pharisees, sent their disciples to Jesus along with the Herodians. And uh, the disciples of the Pharisees on the one hand, the Herodians on the other, uh, these were really two sides of the political spectrum in Jesus' day. The Herodians were supporters of Herod, and thus they were supporters of Rome. The Pharisees, on the other hand, rejected, for the most part, Rome's right to be in the land. You know the saying, a politics makes strange bedfellows. Well, religion maybe makes even stranger bedfellows, especially when people are united in what they are against. And uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians are both against Jesus. And these two groups represent the fact that, that people, on, even in Jesus' day, are fundamentally divided, right? Those who sided with Rome on the one hand, those who wanted to get out from under Rome's rule on the other. If you were a faithful Jew, you, you wanted to get out from under Rome's power, if you were happy to live under Rome's power, then you weren't considered a faithful Jew. Those who rejected Rome, though, they too were divided. Uh, you had people like the Essenes who uh, went off to live in the wilderness and just avoid Rome altogether. And then you had the Zealots who uh, sought to overthrow the political powers that be. And as you look at that scene, what you really end up with is three different ways of viewing politics, right? You have the, the Herodian way, the Essene way, and the Zealot way. On the one hand, you can just capitulate to the government. Uh, whatever the government says, it, even if it conflicts with your religious beliefs, you just kind of go with the government. Uh, the kingdom of man is supreme. You have uh, then the, the Essenes, right? You can avoid the government, avoid political life altogether. You can sort of become a monk, uh, become Amish, right? You just uh, attempt to separate yourself from the taint of culture. You set up your own sort of little kingdom of God off to the side over here somewhere. Um, this is the temptation of, of a lot of Christian, so-called Christian culture, right, to withdraw, to become a subculture, a kind of ghetto. And uh, the third, right, the, the zealots, they wanted to overthrow the government. They wanted to take it by force. They wanted to turn the kingdom of man into the kingdom of God. This was the religious hope in Jesus' day, that, that the Messiah would come, that he would overthrow Rome by force, that, they would, that he would restore God's kingdom to what it had been under King David so long ago. So there's capitulate, withdraw, and overthrow. 
It's this, uh, sort of this, these popular views in Jesus' day that, that gives their question in verse 17 so much weight. Uh, look at verse 17. Verse, uh, sorry, verse 16. Teacher, uh, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The question is a trap. Uh, If Jesus says it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then he's in trouble with the Roman government. He's seen as a revolutionary trying to overthrow Rome. Uh, If he says it is lawful, Jesus will lose his popularity with the religious people because he will be seen as capitulating to Rome. Of course, Jesus knows it's a trap. He recognizes it as a trap and calls out their hypocrisy. And then he asks them for a coin. Once that coin is brought to him, he holds it up and he says, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? And they answer, Caesar's. Caesar's likeness is on the coin. Now the answer is, Jesus. the way Jesus responds at this point is really as subtle as it is profound. In verse 21, Jesus responds, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Render to Caesar. Uh, He he means to give to Caesar what belongs to him. The money has his picture on it. In fact, it was literally his money minted from his own treasury. So very literally, Jesus is saying, give him what is his. Pay your taxes. But Jesus' answer really leads to more questions because what really is Caesar's? I mean, when it comes down to it, what belongs to him? The second half of Jesus' statement sort of limits Caesar's rights, doesn't it? He says, give to God, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. The the money is Caesar's. Okay, it has Caesar's image on it. What has God's image stamped on it? Well, we do, of course. We have God's image stamped on us. We were made in the image of God. So Jesus is saying, sure, give Caesar his money, but give yourself to God. Jesus is putting limits, isn't he? Definite limits on the demands of the state. The state has certain rights. We heard earlier in Romans 13, uh, Paul speaking about governing authorities. Paul says, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The state does have certain rights, but there are limits as well, aren't there? Render to God what is God's, right? Give yourself, give yourself, not to the state, but to God. Now, This was radical, maybe more radical in the ancient world than it is to our ears, because in the ancient world, kings and rulers and emperors and pharaohs claimed to be gods themselves. They claimed that they had ultimate authority over their subjects. Jesus says, no, that's that's not the case at all. They they do have an authority, sure, uh, but it's limited by God's authority, which is over all, even over Caesar. And notice that Jesus, he fails to fall in line with their scheme, with their two-party or three-party scheme, right, for or against Rome. Um, you know, we're often quick to claim God uh, for our political agenda, but even in Jesus' own day, he doesn't neatly fit into their given categories. Rather, he encourages legitimate activity in the political sphere, right, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, while recognizing God's ultimate authority, And of course, if Jesus didn't fit with the political either-or of his day, we should be slow, at least, to claim Jesus as fitting neatly on one side or the other in our own day. 
I'm not saying, of course, that there aren't clear issues, uh, though often there may be less clear issues than we claim for there to be. But even with clear issues, uh, how they map onto the political world is not always easy to make out. Also notice that Jesus, interestingly, he, he doesn't talk the way we talk today. He doesn't talk about religious liberties, uh, but he talks about religious obligations. You know, what limits the rights of kings? Well, the rights of the king of kings. We're so concerned in our day uh, to preserve religious liberties in our country, which is great. I'm thankful for our religious liberties. Don't misunderstand me. But we're so anxious to preserve them as if that there is a part of life where we are sovereign, right? that the political authority can't touch. But that's not Jesus' argument at all. His argument is that God is the sovereign ruler of all of life, you are made in his image, and, and, and you have a, a bigger, a higher obligation to him than to any political ruler in this world. And so you're to be in the world, active, engaged in the political sphere and culture, but you're to recognize that your life belongs to someone else. You're an alien and a stranger here, the scriptures say elsewhere, a citizen and representative of heaven, of another kingdom. Well, the Sadducees come next with their theological question. And the Sadducees, they're really another player on the religious political field. Uh, they are kind of these aristocratic materialists who collaborated with the Romans. Um, they don't believe in the resurrection. They uh, rather think that death is simply that. It's death. It's the end. Uh, they, too, are bothered by uh, Jesus' popularity. And uh, so they take their chance to stump him as well. They, they come to him with a question, and they concoct this scenario, and it, it seems contrived at least. They say a, a woman marries a man, and he dies, leaving her childless. And as the Old Testament law prescribes, the man's brother marries her to raise up a child for his dead brother. But the man's brother, too, dies, and so she marries another brother and another brother and another brother until she marries all seven brothers, and finally she dies as well. And their question, the trap, is found in verse 28. And their question is, In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. The Sadducees think that this question really makes the resurrection absurd. I mean, if the woman has seven husbands and they're all raised from the dead together, well, the woman can't have seven husbands, right? That just doesn't make any sense. Clearly, somebody hasn't thought this whole resurrection thing through. Jesus, of course, however, again, easily answers his agitators in verses 29 and 30. Jesus answers them. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. See, the Sadducees assume, well, if there's going to be a resurrection, then life in the time of the resurrection must be just like it is now. But Jesus says it's, it's not so. Uh, in the resurrection there will be no marriage. Marriage's usefulness will have come to an end. And yet he doesn't stop there. He, he goes on, he says, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God, I am, the, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And Jesus makes this argument to the Sadducees based on the books of Moses. You know, the Sadducees thought that the books of Moses were more reliable than the rest of the Old Testament. So Jesus goes to the books of Moses 
And uh, not only that, he asserts that these words are from God to them. He says, have you not read what was said to you by God? And then he argues based on the present tense of the verb. It's really interesting. He makes this very specific argument. The argument is, God says, I am, not was, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead. So Jesus' argument is, uh, if God is their God, then they must somehow still exist. That's his argument. God says, I am their God. Not I was their God, but I am their God. Now, sort of the, the materialistic view of the Sadducees is very similar to the view in our day, that this world is all there is, right? That this present physical world is it, that it, this is everything, uh, that, that, um, that death is final, that it's the end of all things, that there's nothing beyond it, nothing after it, nothing more to come. But Jesus teaches that there will come a day when everyone will rise from the dead and that those who belong to God will be, right? That's his argument, that we will be because God is our God, ever-present. He is our God in a way that, of course, only God can be. God being our God for Jesus secures eternal life. It's not just a spiritual life that somehow goes on after death, but a resurrection. Jesus is rising from the dead, a physical life that goes on beyond the grave. Jesus says, no, the resurrection is going to happen. Uh, that woman and her seven husbands are going to get out of their graves one day. They won't be married because that's not the way resurrection life is, Jesus says. It's different from life now in certain aspects, but it is sure. And it is certain because God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he is our God, and he will continue to be our God even when our bodies are dead and in the grave. There's one more question that the, the questioners use to try to trap Jesus. It's the ethical question. The, the Pharisees, one of their lawyers, uh, come to Jesus in verse 36 and ask this question, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, you might wonder why this is a trap. Well, there are over 600 laws uh, cataloged by the religious leaders in Jesus' day, and they knew every one of them. And you can imagine, because of our human tendency, the debates over which of those 600 was most important. Even today, I've heard people talk about uh, what is and what is not central to Scripture with the implication that, that oftentimes the implication in the argument is, if it's not central, then I don't really need to believe it or obey it. See, the idea is if I can relegate something in the Scripture to sort of the second tier of importance, then I can safely ignore it and brush it aside. Well, their assumption, the, the assumption of this lawyer, is that, is that probably whatever Jesus says, he's going to step on somebody's toes. But Jesus, uh, once again, he, he kind of cuts through the clutter with a clear, decisive statement in verses 37 and 39. And he uh, said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus sums up the whole of our moral duty in two commandments. It says it all is summarized right here. By doing, and by doing that, though, Jesus is not uh, doing away with the rest of the law. Sometimes we think that. Jesus gave us two commandments. There were all these commandments in the Old Testament. Now we only have two. Doesn't that make everything easier? That's not what Jesus is saying, though. Verse 40, Jesus says, On these two commandments... 
depend all the law and the prophets. What he's really saying is you cannot fulfill the rest unless you get this down first. You cannot truly fulfill the rest of the law unless you do it in a spirit of love, love for God and love for your neighbor. In fact, the way to love is by doing the rest of the things commanded in the law. I mean, think about it. It, it, When you begin to think about it, it becomes pretty obvious. You love your neighbor by not killing them, right? You can keep the commandment not to kill your neighbor. That's one way that you love your neighbor, right? You love your neighbor by not stealing from them, by not coveting what they have. That's the way in which you live out the commandment to love. That's what Jesus is saying. Here are the two commandments. They sum up everything else. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus is not undermining the law. He's beautifully summarizing it. And by the way, he's really just quoting two places in the Old Testament, highlighting what's already there. And notice how this then lends a certain character to Jesus himself and Jesus' kingdom. And as people argued about the law, which was the most important, uh, one person might suggest that laws about worship were most important, right? There are all kinds of laws about worship in the Old Testament, laws about sacrifice, laws about altars, laws about the temple. And somebody might suggest, well, those are the most important laws. And And then, if that were the case, God's kingdom becomes a kingdom focused on liturgy, on forms, on what do I do when... Uh, How do I perform this sacrifice, that sacrifice? Another might suggest, well, no, no, it's laws about kingship that are most important, right? Go to Deuteronomy. There are laws in Deuteronomy about kingship. Those are really the most important laws. Of course, if that's the case, God's kingdom becomes a kingdom focused on rule. Still another might say, no, it's laws about purity in Leviticus. Those are the most important laws. We need to remain a pure people. God's kingdom then becomes focused on, on maintaining ritual cleanliness, apart from the world. Or you could have a fourth person who simply quotes the second half of the Ten Commandments with the implication that God's kingdom is about strict social order. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie. Well, without denying any of these, Jesus focuses us on our obligation to love, to love God with all of our hearts and to love our neighbor as ourself. And it's this love, then, that characterizes his kingdom. Ultimately, we'll see that's because of who he is and because of what he came to do. Is this love that should characterize his kingdom is really a love that characterized him first. So the religious leaders, they've they've done their best to discredit Jesus. They've peppered him with questions about issues. But really, they have neglected the most important issue, which is what Jesus turns to next brings us to the the central question. They've been putting Jesus to the test. Uh, He's able to answer their questions one after another, and he now puts them to the test. The Pharisees are apparently still there. They're, They're hanging around, and Jesus asks them a question in verse 42. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, I like this question because in some ways it's, it's very concrete, it's very historical. Um, Jesus doesn't challenge them with some philosophical puzzle, but with something very tangible in one sense, a very historical question, historical, right, because it's something that takes place in time and space. Um, and for the religious Jews of Jesus' day, it really was an easy question, too. And they knew, everybody knew the answer to that. Uh, the Christ, the, the anointed one in Hebrew, the Messiah, everybody knows the Messiah would be the son of David. That's easy. 
You read through the Old Testament, David is kind of the original anointed one, the, the, the prototypical king, the, the, the king by whom all the rest are, are judged. He's the standard. And God promises that he's going to raise up one of David's sons to sit on David's throne. The Christ is the son of David. Well, Jesus, again, points back to Scripture in verses 43 to 44. <clears throat> and he says to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now Jesus is, is quoting a, a psalm, quoting David, speaking in Psalm 110. And uh, what does David say in Psalm 110? He says, The Lord, which in Hebrew was Yahweh, right, God. So the Lord God said to my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, the place of ultimate authority. So David, in the passage, has two lords. He has Yahweh, the Lord, and then he has another called my Lord, whom Jesus is saying is the Messiah. So there's the Lord and my Lord. David calls then the Messiah, he calls the Christ, my Lord. And so Jesus asks, in verse 45, I read it a second ago, he said, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And, and you have to understand that in that culture, uh, a son, the word son, was used for more than physical descent. To be a son was to be inferior to someone else. David is the great king of Israel, and therefore, on the Pharisees' scheme, the Messiah would be like David, but not greater than David, because he was David's son. The Messiah cannot be David's Lord and David's son at the same time. It doesn't work like that, right? You can't be both superior to someone and inferior to them at the same time. Well, suddenly the Pharisees, Pharisees realize that maybe they don't understand as much about the Messiah as they thought. Why does Jesus ask this question? I mean, it's an interesting question. Um, is it just a good bit of sort of impossible Bible trivia that he knew he could use? He could stump these guys at their own game. They would never get this one, so he brings out this question. Probably not, right? Why does Jesus go here, of all places? He could have asked a billion different questions, right? Why this one? I think it's because Jesus knew that the problem of the religious leaders... And the, the problem of the Pharisees, of the Herodians, of the Sadducees, the problem of you and me, when we reject Christianity because of some issue, the problem is not the issue. The problem is that, that we don't understand whose son the Christ is. It is our faulty con conception of the Messiah that leads us to reject Christianity. Particularly, we assume that Jesus is merely the son of David. He's simply another David. And think about it. If Jesus is just another David, if Jesus is just another king, just another political ruler who brings just another kingdom, then really Jesus is not that special after all. I mean, there have been lots of kings, right? There have been lots of rulers, lots of presidents and governors and politicians. There have been lots of kingdoms, lots of governments that have arisen and fallen in history. If Jesus is just another David, then his kingdom would have come and gone and been forgotten in the dustbin of history like so many others before it. But Jesus is not just David's son. Jesus is also David's Lord. 
He is David's Lord because he is the Son of God. Whose son is the Christ? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that he is the son of David according to the flesh, but he was declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the son of David, but he is also the son of God. And notice how this interacts, right, with all of the other questions Jesus has been dealing with, the question about politics and about the resurrection and about the commandments. The people of Jesus' day are looking for a Messiah to come and overthrow Rome uh, by force to restore God's kingdom to what it was under David. But Jesus is not merely a son of David. He's the son of God. Jesus does come to establish God's kingdom, but not like David, not with a sword, not by force and coercion. Jesus comes into the world and he comes without political force. I mean, think about it. Uh, Jesus' first question they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And what does Jesus say? He says, get me a coin. Get me a coin, right? All of the money belonged to Caesar. It has his image on it. It was minted from his treasuries. But Jesus has to ask someone to borrow a single coin. He's a king without a, without a dime to his name. He's a king who goes to the cross. A, a king who suffers and who dies king who conquers death, but through an apparent defeat. Jesus doesn't resort to coercion. He doesn't resort to, to power politics to establish his kingdom. Jesus is put to death by those in political power. And then he rises again in the power of the Spirit and thus establishes God's kingdom. See, his kingdom is, is nothing apart from the resurrection, is it? If Jesus had not been raised, then our faith is in vain. Then his kingdom has ended. But Jesus has been raised. Jesus was put to death by the power of politicians, but he was raised by the power of the Spirit. See, really, there are fundamentally two different ways of working in the world. Uh, there's the power of the sword, which is a genuine, God-given political power. And then there's the power of the Spirit. There, there's the power of coercion and, and force and manipulation, that, which is not always bad, by the way, right? It's important that we have laws that are backed up by police officers, it's important that those police officers have the power of force to enforce those laws. But then there's also the power of the Spirit at work in people's hearts, working through the Word of God. And Jesus came and he died and he rose from the dead. And, and what did he do then to conquer the world with his kingdom? He didn't send his people out to convert the world at sword point. Uh, he didn't send people to the Roman Senate to try to legislate Christianity into prominence. He sent them to preach in the power of the Spirit. Jesus is not simply a son of David. He is a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom that he says to Pontius Pilate is not of this world. And what's to be the great sign of Jesus' kingdom? Well, really, the great sign that Jesus points out above all else is, is love. Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And do you notice how, how each of these questions in the end is really radically shaped by who Jesus is? Um, the political question is shaped by the king without a coin who suffers and dies and rises from the dead to establish his kingdom. The theological question is shaped by the king who would die and rise from the dead, thus securing our own resurrection from the dead.
The ethical question is shaped by the king's life of death and resurrection. We are to love as he loved us through self-sacrificial service. He died on the cross in the hope of the resurrection to come. What do you think about the Christ? He's a king without a coin who died and rose from the dead out of love for sinful, broken humanity. What does that all mean for us? If we take this to heart, right, if we get what Jesus is saying about himself, it means lots of things in light of all these questions, right? It means we should participate in the political realm, that we're free to do that, that we're not to retreat into sort of religious and political ghettos, not to be owned, though, by the political system either. We're exiles and strangers here in this world. We belong to another world, the world of the resurrection to come. It means we can hope beyond the world of politics, right? All of our hopes must not hang on legislation. Might we be active working for certain legislation because it's good for our community, our society? Yes, certainly we can do that, but we don't have to set our hopes on that because of the resurrection to come. And though we work for justice in the here and now, we look for a day when everything will be put right, when Jesus will return and the dead will be raised and justice will reign. It also means that we can live now loving as Christ loved us, seeking to serve those around us self-sacrificially as Jesus served us sacrificially. Of course, ultimately, all this means that we are to bow bow the knee to our King, who is a king, uh, not, uh, whose kingdom is not of this world, but will one day fill this world. Because while other kingdoms rise and fall and rulers come and pass away, Jesus rose from the dead and his kingship endures forever. And we too will rise from the dead because his subjects will be, because God is our God now and forever and that will not change. Well, maybe you've been avoiding Jesus because of some issue. Maybe it's an issue we talked about uh, this morning. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's some other issue that's been bothering you. Uh, Let me invite you to, to cut through the clutter and to begin to ask this one important central question. Whose son is the Christ? Who is Jesus? And I pray that you will come to know him as the, as the king without a coin who died for sin and rose from the dead out of love for rebellious people, people like you and like me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you uh, that he came into the world to establish not just another kingdom, but a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom that will last forever, a kingdom not based on the power of the sword, but based on the power of the Spirit seen in the resurrection, a kingdom that will have no end. We thank you that Jesus, even now, is sitting on the throne at your right hand, reigning over his kingdom, reigning over us, reigning over his people. We pray that we would live now as good citizens of that kingdom, even as we live as good citizens of the kingdoms of this world, to honor our great King. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.